Welcome to Engaging Culture, a podcast presented by Bridgeway Christian Church. I'm Brian Kiley. Today's episode is actually not a live studio episode, but instead is a pre-recorded interview with Micah Bornet. Micah is a spoken word artist who was recently a guest artist at our Care and Compassion Expo weekend here at Bridgeway. I loved getting to sit down with Micah to talk about spoken word, faith, justice, what he's up to, and all sorts of different topics. So I hope you enjoy this interview. Micah, thank you for the time. I uh, appreciate it. Yeah, good to be here. So for those who, I mean, you've been to Bridgeway before. Those who have been around Bridgeway for a while or may have maybe heard of your work. For those who maybe don't know you or who maybe those in the Bridgeway community who experienced kind of you for the first time this weekend, just tell us a little bit about your background and, and what it is that you do. Yeah, uh, I was born and raised in Long Beach, California, um, under the influence of hip-hop. Uh, the time I was, I was growing up, uh, a lot of the most well-known rappers in hip-hop at the time were specifically from Long Beach. Uh, Snoop Dogg, Nate Dogg, Warren G, just a lot of a lot of cats. So I grew up just in love with the lyricism and just the clever way that rappers would, you know, use metaphor and word plays and punchlines and all those things. So before I started writing, I was just developing this appetite for uh, cleverly worded things and so uh so yeah and uh it wasn't until college that i started writing and i i started my freshman year started writing hip-hop but it was funny because i didn't consider it writing because it was hip-hop i was like well i'm rapping i'm not like writing because i associated writing and poetry with like school and academics and i always struggled in school and i didn't really think i liked it um but i i, I was rapping for a couple of years and then someone invited me to an open mic where I saw spoken word poetry live for the first time. And I'd seen it on, on YouTube, but never live. And for those unfamiliar, spoken word poetry is is poetry written to be performed instead of read off of a page. Mm-hmm. And so there's kind of like a theatrical element, dramatic monologue type stuff. Um, and it, But it wasn't just that it was theatrical. It was different from the poetry I was exposed to growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not hating on anybody who likes Shakespeare and classical poetry. However, you know, growing up in a diverse inner city I just didn't connect with it. And so I thought poetry had to be, you know, thou art to rose upon thine. You know, it was like if it wasn't old school English, if it wasn't really confusing metaphors, then it wasn't poetry. Like I thought that what poetry had to be. But anyway, I got invited to this open mic. I saw spoken word for the first time and I saw people who looked like me and they were all kind of different ages and, and different ethnicities as well. But they were sharing poetry in language that I understood um, and then also sharing stories that I didn't know you were allowed to share. Mm-hmm. And that was the thing that I loved about it and was drawn to about it. The very first night I went just as an observer, my friend invited me and it was things that people were sharing things that I had been through. But when I went through them, I thought I was the only person on planet earth who felt that way. Mm-hmm. And I was afraid to say anything because if I, if I say how I really feel, people are going to judge me and people are going to think I'm crazy and all these things. This is what I thought. And then I'm sitting in this open mic and there's poet after poet getting on stage and they're just taking the mask off. Yeah. And nobody is judging them and nobody says they're crazy. And, and I realized I am not as alone in a lot of my experiences as I thought I was. Hmm. And so that immediately drew me to it. I wasn't like, I want to be a spoken word poet. It was like, I want to write so I can participate in this exchange. Yeah. Because I was receiving so much, and I said, "Man, if I benefit 
this much from hearing someone else's story. Maybe someone else could benefit from hearing my story. So that night, I decided, in addition to writing rap lyrics, I started writing spoken word poems. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I began. That's that's awesome. There, There is a... Um you kind of referenced this a minute ago, but just an incredible kind of healing power to spoken word because it is so raw and so real. And, and I love the, the kind of the, the metaphor of, of taking the mask off mm-hmm. that you're able to just, you're able to watch a performer. And like you said, realize, man, I'm not the only one who deals with mm-hmm. whatever it may be here. They are expressing themselves and in a theatrical way too, because mm-hmm. the, as you obviously know, because you do it for a living, there is a performance art to this that it's not simply, like you said, words on a page. Yeah, it's not just like story. a poetry reading. Like when, when you're talking about spoken word poetry, you know, there's poetry readings, which I don't do. Sure. Or people who are primarily writing for the page, they just open up their books and they read their poems. But spoken word, I say once you have all the words, your job is only halfway finished. Yeah. You know, then you go back <laughs> through and how am I going to perform this to communicate uh, the things I want to communicate, what tone and what am I going to do with my body yeah. and all of those things. Yeah. No, and that's, that's obviously for, for those who haven't seen you perform live, that is a big part of, of what makes your performance special is not only are the lyrics incredibly profound, but it is a full body experience <laughs> for you when you're up there, Absolutely. which is, which is pretty cool. So you've been doing this for a while then. Yeah. I've been writing now for about 10 years. Um, and I've been traveling and performing for six. Awesome. Yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. I love, um, I'm going to get the line wrong. But you, you said it in a, in a, in a piece you did this weekend about the, in, in the last piece you did about the idea of a, of a job that you work just for a soul. What is it? Soulless, passionless job that you yeah. work just for money. Yeah. Is a, is a, you, you know, yeah, <laughs> but, <laughs> I was just gonna let you keep. Yeah, like well, but even I mean, and the line before that, where you talk about just sort of a life where you're really pursuing your passion and yeah. the, the value in that, yeah. man, that's yeah, that's profound. Yeah, basically, the, the context of the poem um, right now, uh, creative things are often neglected yeah. because they're seen as not important. Yeah. And this was, like, I always struggled in school. I spent most of my life thinking I was stupid. Hmm. But nobody ever told me that my interest in hip-hop was actually an interest in something productive. Yeah. No one ever told me to, hey, try writing spoken word poetry. I didn't even know what it was. And so I went through all of, like, kindergarten through high school feeling dumb. And it's I think it's really tragic because I meet so many adults who... Um, they see me perform and they'll say things like, oh, when I was younger, I used to write poetry or I used to play guitar or I used to paint. But, you know, life got busy and I, I just didn't have time for it. I got stressed out. I had jobs, responsibility and this. And I had to cut something. And I said, okay, okay, let me rewind real quick. <laughs> let, me, let me rephrase what you just said. You used to do this thing that you loved, that helped you communicate your emotions, that helped you feel at peace. And then you got really busy and really stressed out and really anxious. So you stopped doing the one thing that brought you peace. You stopped playing guitar. (laughs) There seems to be a disconnect. It doesn't make sense. And so one of the things I'm passionate about, and this is leading back to that line, is helping people reframe 
their ideas of creativity. Because I think the reason we're so quick to cut it is because we talk about creativity as a non-essential and also as a very selfish thing. Hmm. So it's like, you know, math, science, those things are important. Creative things are always electives, optional. It's kind of like the cherry on top. Even in the faith community, often uh, when you have creative elements of a church service or a conference, it's kind of just like, oh, this is the appetizer, but the really important part is the sermon, the lecture, the thing. And it's no, no, no. When we engage our creativity, that's one of the primary things about being made in the image of God. It's the first thing we know about God. In the beginning, God created. And it's actually good for your holistic spiritual health. And so instead of thinking of creativity as this kind of dream chasing, because when someone has career aspirations in the field of creativity, we always say, oh, Oh, you're chasing yeah. a dream. You're, you're trying to be famous. You're, you're trying to be a rapper. Yeah. And so I say, you know, um, I'm dreaming of a world where um, creativity, pursuing creative things is a responsible thing. And working a passionless job to get rich. Now, that's the silly dream. Hey, there's the line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, that's yeah. the silly dream. Because yeah. uh, so many people I know have really good paying jobs. Yeah. That they have no passion for. <clears throat> they don't have any interest in but it's a good job and it's responsible and my parents are proud of me meanwhile they neglected these creative things which may not make as much money maybe they do maybe they don't but either way it's not just this selfish thing because you're trying to be famous me pursuing uh, a career in poetry which i eventually decided to do um i'm not chasing fame this stuff is changing people's lives it's creating conversation it's a very unselfish thing and it is a very essential thing um, and so that's that's what it, what it's about. Um, that line is about. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. You've done a lot of work with World Relief and the Justice Conference and, and all of that. Uh, World Relief is an organization we partner with in a, in a big way at, at Bridgeway. Uh, my family and I we we've, we support World Relief in different ways. Yeah. Uh, talk about that partnership and, and the work you've done with them and, and your work with the Justice Conference. Yeah. So um, I actually did an internship in Oregon at the church that founded the Justice Conference. Uh, there's a guy named Ken Weitzma. He's a pastor. And uh, he used to pastor at Antioch Church in Bend, Oregon. Um, he's now a pastor over in Portland. But um, the year of my internship was the year they were planning the first Justice Conference. So that's how I got connected. Okay. Um, and the church partnered with World Relief on the Justice Conference. And at the time, the president of World Relief was a guy named Stephen Bowman. And so I, through my relationship with the church, performed at the first conference and Stephen, as long as well as a lot of other administrators in the World Relief Organization, were there and they saw me do my poetry, and um, immediately uh, they were drawn to me and specifically Stephen because he writes poetry. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like oh let's talk business or let's talk partnership <laughs> or let's talk justice. It was like I write poetry too, That's and we cool. just struck up this friendship. Yeah. Um, and so then over the years of just being friends with Stephen, um, and then through friendship with him, getting connected to the organization. Um, even after he uh, moved on to different things. But uh, I still have a great relationship with him. Uh, World Relief sponsors uh, all of, actually, I have four albums out, and World Relief has partnered with me on that uh, to help me continue doing what I do. And then I also do write a lot of material for them, perform at a lot of their events and conferences and things like that around the world. I've traveled traveled with them as well to some of their international sites in uh, Ghana and Rwanda. Wow. Yeah. That's really cool. Um. Your latest record, mm-hmm. your latest project, uh, A Time Like This, mm-hmm. t- 
talk about that. Talk about uh, what is it? What do you mean for uh, you, know, you talk about made for a time like this? Mm-hmm. What is the heart behind that line? And then what is the kind of the heart that permeates the whole project um, in terms of what are you, what are you trying to communicate to people through that that line specifically? Yeah, no, absolutely. then through the project as a whole. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So a time like this is is, is a reference um, to the story of Queen Esther in Scripture. Um, where she is living in a very terrible time for her people group. Uh, and the Jews were about to be obliterated. Uh, genocide was proclaimed and it was coming. And um, basically, her uncle, cousin, adopted dad <laughs> dude, um, tells her, you know, like, hey, I know this sucks, but maybe there's a reason God puts you in this time and place. And in this position. Um, and that inspired the album because, and I mean, I know some things are controversial, but like, I, I feel that way. I feel like I'm born in a very evil time in this nation. And I was feeling overwhelmed uh, as an African-American by a lot of the conversations that I saw happening in the nation and within the church. And I was just like, really discouraged and then that story came to mind hey yeah this sucks but maybe there's a reason i was born in this generation and given these gifts maybe i can do something about it instead of just you know just being frustrated and so that's where the album came from and uh a lot of my albums before that were just kind of like i would live and have experiences and then after a couple years i had enough material to do a new project a time like this was written specifically in response to the particular time we're living in and the issues that I, that are, are heaviest on my heart right yeah. now. Yeah. Now you obviously have a, uh, just a huge bent in so much of your work towards justice. Racial justice is a, is a big theme of yours, mm-hmm. but, but certainly it stretches beyond that. The t-shirt you're wearing right now says, says fight evil with poetry. Mm-hmm. I love that line. Uh, <laughs> Where does the where does the justice bent come from? You've talked about it a little bit, kind yeah. of your response to the present moment. Um, but I'd be curious to hear you talk a little bit about that. I mean, certainly your faith comes comes through in in your lyrics as well, mm-hmm. and I would imagine that those two things are are deeply connected for you. But but I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about kind of the 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 heart for justice, the heart to affect change, mm-hmm. and, and the role that plays in in your work. Yeah, yeah. To me, it's. Uh I understand the question and I get it a lot. It's kind of confusing to me because I, I don't see it as a justice bit. I see it as just being a Christian. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because, you know, a lot of people do tend to think, a lot of Christians tend to think of social justice as kind of like this secondary thing where it's a good thing, but it's not like what really matters is, you know, the gospel as if the just as if justice isn't an integrated part of it. Um, and I think there's an emphasis on the spiritual. Yeah. There's an emphasis on making sure people go to heaven when they die and their souls are saved. Mm-hmm. And there's an emphasis on individual salvation, uh, come to Jesus, say the sinner's prayer, come to the altar. Um, but in the black American experience and black American expression of, of Christ, Christian faith, that has not been the case. That, uh, Black American Christians have always interpreted the gospel through our experience of suffering in this nation 
And everyone interprets the gospel through their own experiences. But because of that, when we, when we hear Jesus historically and now, we hear the gospel, the story of Jesus, um, what we see is um, a God who prioritizes those who are the least of these. Yeah. A God who understands firsthand the suffering as uh, he was crucified and we were lynched, right? As And we see that. And, and so for me, when I see Old and New Testament, salvation was always to the holistic human being, not just to their spirits, yeah. but to their bodies as well. We have a bodily resurrection, but when Jesus came on the scene, he was healing people's physical ailments, he was feeding people, and he was also calling people to repent in their lifestyles. And it was like... There wasn't this separation. It was um, the gospel was good news for the whole uh, human. And that means when individuals, when people groups are being oppressed, when they're being uh, when violence is committed against them, it is the job of the gospel to bring good news to that as well. And so I, I just look at like, you know, when John the Baptist sent messengers to Jesus to say, hey, are you the coming Messiah, or should we wait for another? Yeah. His response was what some Christians would consider a bunch of social justice stuff. Mm-hmm. Hey, are you the Messiah? Tell John, the blind see, the lame walk, yeah. the good news is preached to the poor. You know, and it was like, yeah. oh, and then the only place in the New Testament where, where Scripture even attempts to summarize our faith is in James. Hey, Pure and undefiled religion is this. Care for widows and orphans and remain unspotted by the world. So it's, it's, it's bringing together these things that we often separate. Hey, yes, the repentance of remaining unspotted by the world, the spiritual cleanse, cleanliness and the holiness is there. But it's care for widows and orphans, too. Not, and it's not about earning your way into heaven. It's about, hey, this is what Jesus did. This is living like Jesus. Jesus came and cared for oppressed people. Um, both physically, their physical bodies, and their spiritual uh, bodies. Because together, that makes the whole human. Boom. Beautiful. Love it. Yeah, absolutely. The idea that you have to separate separate the two, mm-hmm. I mean, that's... I, I don't know if that's a modern construct or, or, or what, mm-hmm. but it's or it's certainly not a biblical construct. Yeah, Because you're right. It's, it's both. Now, I want to ask you... I want to switch gears a little bit here. I want to ask you about criticism. Mm-hmm. Because I've listened to enough of your stuff to know that you must have a ton of critics, oh, yeah. and and that a lot of a lot of your critics probably come from the church. Yeah, um, I feel like in my world, I am doing 001 percent of what you're doing to try to move the move the ball down the field in terms of justice, to move the ball down the field in terms of kind of hey, what are we doing in terms of how do we live in this present moment? Mm-hmm. And, and I experience it, the critics and the man want to come on, just preach the gospel or, Oh, you know, accusations of being political and all this mm-hmm. other stuff. So I know if I at 0.01% am getting it, you must get it a ton. How does that, first of all, how does that affect you? And I don't want to talk specifically about criticism from within, mm-hmm. from within the body of Christ. Yeah, yeah. And then how do you seek to move forward productively mm-hmm. in a way that actually that doesn't alienate people who, who maybe can't handle certain mm-hmm. ideas, but instead really seeks to affect change? Yeah. You know, I think um, 
the American church, and I, and I grew up in the American church, and I'm still part of it, um, and, and, and I would say the conservative American church, which I still identify with, mm-hmm. um, they kind of have this, this persecution complex of, I, I grew up thinking, you know, like, the world is going to hate us because <laughs> we're Christians. You know, do not be surprised when the world hates you. They hated me first, you know? Yeah. So I, as I was maturing and growing older in my faith and just growing older, that was kind of my expectation, that as I'm preaching the messages God put on my heart, that my biggest critics were going to be unbelievers of the world. But that has not been the case. Yeah. Um, I get the majority of my hate mail, which I get a fair amount, mm-hmm. and criticism and people walking out in church context. Yeah. And at first it was confusing, but again, read the gospel, and it's not. Jesus' greatest critics were not unbelievers. Jesus' greatest critics were the Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees? They were really conservative people who cared deeply about the Word of God and had the Old Testament memorized. And they were all about righteousness and holiness. And they were just so sure that they had it right. That they were the ones who had the truth. And the thing is, it's not just like, oh, they had it mostly right and they missed it, but uh, they had a few things off. No. The Pharisees is the conservative American church in our context. This is, if, we, if we're going to assign roles, like, and I'm saying this as not pointing the finger, but identifying myself right. with that. It's, hey, Jesus' greatest rebukes were from people who thought they were loving God correctly and interpreting scripture correctly. And they missed the whole thing. Yeah. They missed the whole boat. It wasn't like they almost like, they went over their heads and Jesus looked at them and he says, you are whitewashed tombs. You will travel to the other side of the world to make a single convert. And when you win them, you will turn them into twice the son of hell as yourself. <laughs> you know, so it's like, oh, <laughs> that'll, that'll, snap. That'll, that'll preach. Exactly. Uh, not, not so, really. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things where when I face criticism, I have to pause and ask myself a few things because realistically, if I'm preaching the radical provocative gospel that Jesus preached, I should be getting criticism from somewhere from probably both the world and the church, Mm -hmm. right? I should be calling the people of God to something greater if there's compromise within the church and I should be calling the world to repentance. Yeah. So that means I'm going to get it from every angle. <laughs> You're just asking. <laughs> right? Exactly. So, so when, when people are offended, when I get criticism, my first reaction is not necessarily I must have done something wrong. But I do ask myself, okay, what are they offended by? Why are they offended? And then I ask myself, did I offend them with the truth or did I offend them with the offensive way I presented the truth. Mm, That's good. Because sometimes I can have a persecution complex because I preach the truth and they just don't like the truth. Or maybe I was just a jerk. Yeah, you can tell the truth and still be a jerk. Yeah, maybe I was (laughs) telling the truth and I had all kind of pride in me. Yeah. You know, and then... No, that's good. But then sometimes you can be as gentle as you want and people still get mad. You know, so it's more... I I try to use it as an opportunity to self-reflect. Yeah. But... Criticism for me, I personally would be more worried about the integrity of my message if I was getting nothing but applause. Hmm. Yeah. Because if I am a, if not just a 
artist, but any communicator of truth in this context, and, and, and I don't just mean America, just in the world that we live in, if yeah. you are constantly talking about important issues through art, through preaching, through any medium, through even just social media, if you, if, if you do that on a regular basis and you never offend people, then that means you're not being courageous. Yeah. You're playing it safe. Yeah. You're walking on eggshells. You're being a politician to just to make sure everybody likes you, but you're not actually saying the hard word. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. I, uh, man, as someone who feels like I wrestle with that every day, every hour, every minute of my life, kind of walking that balance between telling the truth and in a way that people can receive it and then just sort of dealing with the criticism. I've just sort of learned if you don't want any critics, just don't do anything meaningful. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. If, if you want to, if you want to live a, a plain vanilla life, that will likely attract no critics, mm-hmm. but it will be passionless to the yeah. to the statement you made a minute ago. So it might be uh, comfortable, but it won't be any power. Yeah, and I, but I, I do think that there's something to be said on the the other side as well. To I mean, I love what you said about are they offended by the truth, which is one thing, or are they offended by the way that we present it? Because I think there is a there is a, a time and a place for different messages, and I think it is important for those of us who have a platform. And in the social media world, everyone has a platform. Mm-hmm. It takes some discernment and some wisdom to say, okay, like I could fill up my Facebook feed with mm-hmm. stuff that is quote unquote true all day long. Yeah, yeah. But it could just be alienating. Absolutely. Right? Or I can seek to tell the truth in a way that might help somebody who is living in a state of unreality mm-hmm. begin to sort of recognize that for what it is. But but admittedly, that's hard to do. Yeah. And I'm sure you as an artist, you, you probably wrestle with that all the time. Absolutely. And, and I think people mistake like being loving for being nice. Because yeah. you don't have to be nice. Yeah. Again, the, the, the things Jesus said that we referenced earlier, they were not nice. To look at somebody and say, you're a son of Satan, or you're a whitewashed tomb, you're pretty on the outside, you're dead on the inside, is not a nice thing. Right. <laughs> you know? It's like, okay, Jesus, don't you think you could have communicated that in a way that they might have been more open to receiving it? You know? And it's Hey, there you go. This is the thing. (laughs) Like, I'm not saying just say how you feel, but there is a time and place because there were other times where Jesus faced critics and he told a parable and he says, well, what do you think? Here goes the story. And he challenged him like that. So it's about using discernment and knowing when. um, But the thing is, like, don't be afraid of any emotion. Just filter them all through the gospel and through the, the fruit of the spirit and no win because my tone has changed because I think as a black American, it is appropriate for me to communicate anger right now in love. Sure. But it's like, there's a time to gently explain things to people. And there's a time to rebuke yeah. and say, the church is compromised. Yep. <laughs> you know, well, we and that's wrong. Yeah. That's right. And yeah, so, yeah. But it, again, it's not like just, the same for everyone and you, just, you have to really you have to really see God and 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 have courage and also have humility to when you get it wrong to admit that yeah you know no, and to, to not be embarrassed like you don't have to always be right and you're not even if you act like you are so there definitely has been times where I'm like I shouldn't have done that I yeah. need to change in this context I should have done something different yeah and different places will tell us to apologize or to admit you're wrong as a sign of weakness I, I think that nothing could be further from the truth but it shows some integrity when we get it wrong Absolutely. just be honest about that Absolutely. so no, that's good um, we gotta wrap this up because I know you gotta get, gotta get to your next thing but uh, for those who are interested in learning more about you uh, 
hearing some of your work, all that, where can they find you online or, or anywhere yeah. else? Yeah, so uh, my latest album is called A Time Like This, and it is streaming on all major platforms, iTunes, um, Spotify, and also all of my albums uh, are free downloads through my website, which is just my name, M-I-C-A-H-B-O-U-R-N-E-S.com, Um And I also um, have a website called fightevilpoetry.com, which uh, me and my uh, partner, business partner, uh, Chris, we are putting together an anthology of poetry. We got 30 different poets all writing about justice issues, and that book is coming out in the fall, and all the proceeds are going to go to different nonprofit organizations. Awesome. So. Love it. All right. Well, hey, check them out uh, online. It is it is brilliant writing. It is provocative. It is offensive in all the right ways. It'll get you to think. It'll... Uh, man lead you to repentance it'll make you pray it'll it'll give you a window into the the time we're living in and um anyway just uh mike is an extremely talented guy and would encourage you to check out his work um hey thank you for the time i appreciate it absolutely all right thanks to all you for listening we'll catch you on our next episode here real soon bye-bye thank you for listening to engaging culture a podcast by bridgeway christian church if you enjoyed the show please consider subscribing and leaving a review on itunes Thank you so much for listening. Music is used under the Creative Commons license and is provided by Dexter Britton.